0: Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan and rational and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. I'm joined today by Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Factotum, Jay Carson. Hey, Jay. Good morning, Mike. Hey, how are you? I- I'm doing well. How about you?
1: Well, I can't I can't complain.
0: Well, it's, that's, uh, that's yeah. good to hear. You made it through the first show? Yeah. So, you know, it's been quite a while since we've done a listener comment show and we've got a bunch of things uh, in the queue. So if you are ready to go, we can just have at it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's go. Well, let's start with Eric who asks, what do you think of the various purity tests going on in the parties? I want to know how Mike, the Marine is anti gun. Um. well, <laughs> First off, I want to say I'm uh, I'm not actually anti-gun, and, and he's just
1: anti you having a gun.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I actually it's, it's more that my wife is anti me having a gun, but that's a whole other story. She's probably well, she's not probably she is far wiser than I am. But uh, to me, uh, I, that's two separate things, sort of. I am not anti-gun. I'll address this this personal side first. I am sort of pro reasonable gun. Regulation. So I've talked about this before. I am for, for instance, uh, licensing requirements, registration requirements, a national registry. I am for uh, basically putting some of the same constraints on gun ownership as as we do on our ability to operate a motor vehicle. And to me, that's not being anti-gun. I would never ban people from having guns who are qualified and have the requisite training to use them properly and safely any more than I would ban those same people for using motor vehicles. So I am pro-gun regulation, but I am not anti-gun. Um, That's the more kind of specific part of the question addressed at me. As for the question of purity tests, I am not at all uh, a fan of purity tests I think um I believe that uh, my party can be a big tent now there are certain obvious things that I think kind of disqualifies you from maybe both major political parties so if you are in favor of I don't know like genocide or, or white power or something like that well then yeah that to me is a if you want to call that a purity test then okay but the idea that we can't have differences of opinion on some of these things you know I I am I am to a certain extent I guess you could call me pro-life sympathetic um and I am pro nuclear power and on those grounds I think there are a number of folks on the progressive left who would say that I'm not a real uh democrat and so to the extent that those things are purity tests I'm I'm definitely not for those, and and I think just like on the right, saying that well, you either support President Trump or you're not, or you're helping the Democrats, or you're one of the enemy. I, I think that those things are ridiculous and wrongheaded as well. So that's my view on purity tests. Jay, what do you think?
1: Um, you know, I my, my uh, I I think I agree with you on most all those those things. Um, uh, yeah, I I think there there ought to be room and in, in big tents. Um, What's happened is, is you, there's, there's been just more and more, um, defections one way or the other. And, and, uh, you know, particularly I mean, there used to be, uh, not uncommon to have a lot of, uh, pro-life Democrats, pro-gun mm-hmm. Democrats, um, and, uh, even some, some, uh, pro-choice Republicans who I think are, are still there. I think there's probably more pro-choice Republicans than there are pro-life Democrats, uh, if you're just looking at congressional makeup today but um no I, I think that's 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 too bad and and it's a weird sort of thing when you consider that so much of our politics used to be uh regional uh mm-hmm. it used to be based on here's what's good for my district uh here's what's what's you know what can help my state uh, here's you know the industries that that they work And unless there's these bigger ideological pieces um so I think that's that's unfortunate i I don't know that there's a solution for it but um
0: so 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 there you go eric both Jay and i are anti-purity yeah so um next we have alex who has a question i think that's directed much more at you Jay, than it is at me uh, but i'll I'll also i think answer it um alex would like to understand why conservatives fear uh Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren's Democratic Socialism so much. He writes, They even say that they wouldn't think twice about voting for Trump ahead of these two. And the fact that such intellectually honest commentators can actually support a man such as Trump, who is literally just an awful human being in every way, over Bernie, who might be close to the opposite, scares me to the same extent that socialism seems to scare those commentators. I see yeah. many reasons for the socialist – my, hear my quotes there – policies right. Bernie is proposing uh, about things like stagnant wages, automation, healthcare care, cost rising, student loan debt, where, quote-unquote, capitalist policies have aggravated or failed to solve these issues. issues. I don't see how addressing these issues through policies already commonplace in other countries will somehow lead us to communism or to become a socialist hellhole. The country's love for individual freedoms and capitalism will still have staunch supporters, and that, make, and that makes ideas of some sort of domino-like descent into communism laughable, in my opinion, considering that no one, especially Bernie, wants communism in any way, and considering that it's so difficult to get legislation passed on even one of these issues, let alone getting full-on socialist policies passed on all of the above. So, Jay, well, what do you think about that? Well I think
1: that's a good question and there is there are some assumptions in there I, I challenge first of off if you think that uh, um, you we can't you you can't go downhill quickly with socialism I, I point to Venezuela um, uh, and and what had happened there um, they had a you know maybe not not great government but uh, uh, once once the Chavez regime came to power things went downhill pretty pretty quickly Um
0: before you move on, let me just say that I think that is about the most inapt metaphor or analogy that you 've that you have given in in these many years of history really? that we have on this show because venezuela 's uh history of democratic history and right? institutions yes. is so much weaker than ours, and so I think that uh, venezuela 's slope certainly was a slippery one, but that comparison i i I utterly reject that comparison but i I want to just Throw that in there before you went on because I know you have some other issues or, or, or thoughts on Alex's question.
1: Yeah. No, the other thing I was, I was responding, it, re- it reminded me of um, the famous quote uh, of uh, Bill Buckley said back sometime in the 60s that uh, the problem with capitalism is capitalists. Um, the problem <laughs> with socialism is socialism. And 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 to me, that's, you know, I think a lot of come down. Donald Trump may be a horse's ass. Uh, you you can certainly argue that, that he is. I think there's plenty of evidence for that. Um, but you know what? At it, it, uh, worst-case scenario, in four years, he'll be gone. Um, it's it's one thing to say we don't like this guy who's a, who's a, a horse's ass. It, it's something else to say, and therefore we ought to uh, rework the entire uh, basic of our, our country's economy. Um, the proposals that, that uh, Warren and Sanders are putting forth – um, it may not be the classic socialism in, in terms of the um, ownership of the means of production, you know, communism ownership of the means of production, but they're, they're a tremendous transfer uh, confiscation and then transfer of wealth, what they're talking about. And they're talking about spending that uh, is orders of magnitude beyond uh, anything that the Obama administration was, was even uh, proposing. Um, so I, I think that's, that's, that's problematic. And, and and once you get into that, um, then it, it becomes more difficult to get out. We will we will survive Donald Trump. Right. Um, uh, but but I don't know that, you know, the, the lasting impacts of of, you know, a Green New Deal um, would be felt for for generations. Uh, and, and that's, that's, I think the, the concern is is that I, I don't care for Trump personally. Uh, I think he's done a whole lot to set back the cause of conservatism,
0: uh,
1: just because of, of, you know, I think this was, this was a lot of the, the never Trump argument that was advanced by, by a lot of conservatives is look, if you have this guy in here and it's kind of the poster child, he will, uh, you know, make a fool of us all and, and will prevent, um, the uh, implementation of, of conservative policy. Yeah. Um, but, but to me that the it's, it's just, this is a a big policy shift that they're talking about much bigger than a new deal, much bigger than the great society. And, uh, once you, once you start going down that road, the other thing about people like to use the phrase democratic socialism. And I think I joked with you a couple of weeks, Mike is, well, that that's how it always starts. um, and 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 that's true. There there is a sense that um you know, yeah, okay, we'll we'll vote on this, but then when you want to try to unvote, uh um, vote the other way, it gets really uh, much more difficult. And uh uh I think that's that's the uh, concern a lot of conservatives in, in in good faith can say, Look, I'm not crazy about what, what uh Trump is, the type of person he is, but I will choose the the lesser of two evils. Um and uh
0: yeah, I, I I agree largely with Alex on this. I think that the idea that, you know, we're going to descend into some sort of socialist hellhole is is uh, fanciful. Well, I, I should mention that. I,
1: I, I would also agree that no matter what, whether Warner or Sanders is elected, I think these policies would be very difficult to actually get enacted. Yeah, See, I, yeah, I, I, I don't, yeah but
0: I like the idea. I, I am. Well, I would you not- like the
1: idea of a socialist hellhole.
0: I like the idea of democratic socialism, absolutely. I look at I look at the model of a lot of other countries in Europe and even to, to Canada and a lot of things, and I think, wow, I wish we could do things that way, um, which is why I'm a person of the left and not the right, right? But I like the idea that Sanders and Warren are pushing for these things, even though I wouldn't actually – approve of the things that they're pushing for necessarily because there's my Berkey inside, right? Because right. I, not because I don't like the, I like them in theory, but because I know enough to know that a lot of things that sound great in theory, especially when they're sweeping changes, uh, have a lot of unintended consequences. And so the argument that you can just take a system that, say, works great in Sweden and just transplant it to here, is as fanciful as the argument that you can say, I don't know, like take democracy and transplant it to Afghanistan or something like that and just assume everything's going to be fine. And so That said, I think they serve a valuable and important purpose because I feel like our politics has – our domestic politics in many cases has shifted so far to the right, so far toward advantaging those who have great wealth and power that these voices are an important counterpoint and it helps to at least try to shift the argument a little bit. Back toward what I consider more of the center. And so I find them to be valuable in that way. And so uh, uh while I I do not think that either of them would make a very effective president, I am glad they are out there making their case for those policies. Okay. All right. Um next we have Sam who wants to know how can the right tell the American people to support the troops when they send them off to get killed? I do not understand how sending them to war is the way to support them. Wouldn't it be more support to bring them home? Well, I'm not the right. I'm not even part of the right. right. So, you're the you troops. S- yeah, I, I, I was the troops at one point. Yeah, a troop. Yeah. Um. Uh.
1: And I supported you. <laughs> yes, you um, did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I think there's. Look, you have to be a little realistic here, and 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 Mike, you can back me up on this. Is well, what do we expect our military to do? I mean why is it that we have them? Uh and again this this comes back to one of these uncomfortable truths is that um we we have them to go fight and and kill other people. Right? When you when you come down to it. Um uh sure it, it's great when you can have the National Guard that helps out in, in uh, uh you know natural emergencies and and stuff like that. Uh natural disasters, but uh as a, you know, Factor. Look, look. The, the United States has never been invaded since 1812. Maybe a couple little incursions from the Mexicans at the, the you know turn of the century kind of thing. Or um, unless you're not unless you're counting the Civil War. But uh, you know, so we we have have never had that need for like a real domestic uh, defense from an, inva- an invading power. Uh, as such. You know, we have sent our troops abroad to to defend uh, what uh, the the government believed to be its interests at the time. Um, I mean, that's that's why we have uh, a, a military. And I, um, if the idea were just to to keep them all at home, then it, it wouldn't be a very effective military. I mean, that, that, I'm not trying to say that we we shouldn't. Um, you know, every engagement should be weighed very carefully um, before troops are deployed, but. I- I, I you know don't, I you don't know. want to be too too simplistic or, or, or glib about it, but but it's kind of like that's what they're there for.
0: Yeah, I, I don't disagree with any of that. Uh but I think the larger issue is and, and something sometimes that gets a lot of people upset is these what are called sometimes called chicken hawks uh these folks who have no skin in the game who have who know not only uh have not ha- have not served but don't even really know anyone who serves and send off uh, and send people off you know these other people off to serve because if you look at we we in the 20th starting in well since the end of the draft really in the you know in the 1970s we've really developed a huge split between our military culture and the rest of our society It didn't used to be that way it used to look in congress and see right. all sorts of people who had served or new people had served and so forth but now that's that's almost not the case at all and you know the data will show you that it's pretty much you know in the south in certain areas by military bases this is where a disproportionate number of folks come from you know at my uh, at my uh, university's uh, commencement ceremonies, I do a thing where they say, you know, well, all the uh, members of the military uh, stand? And I'm like, of all the faculty and people, administrators and all that university, I'm like one of two or three people, I think, who, who stands up. And that just, just illustrates that gulf. If, if that had been that same thing 30, 40 years ago, it'd look a lot different. And, and that is a big problem you know i i understand the reasons for ending the draft and there were a lot of them uh, just in terms of an efficient uh, military force but this idea of shared sacrifice of you know everyone having some sort of common interest and common well, thing at risk when we send off our troops to fight i think that's important and i think we lose that when the when the elite culture on both the left and the right consists almost entirely of people who have, who have never served, uh, who have largely not served anyone except for their own interest in scaling the greasy pole of the meritocracy. And that's a huge problem.
1: (laughs) Uh, The greasy pole is always a huge problem. Yeah. Um, No, would would you, would you say though, that the, is, is there more reticence to send troops abroad than perhaps there, there used to be?
0: I don't, uh, I, don't, or is, I don't think so. Or is so. there
1: less? Or is there less because we have an all volunteer military
0: now? I think it, it's less because it's all volunteer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, they signed up for it, you know, but yeah. but that doesn't mean you can just throw people in harm's way willy nilly. Yeah. And I don't really think that that's, for the most part, Uh, the case. But I think the larger issue is, again, that it's a lot easier to it's a lot easier to make cavalier decisions when you don't have any skin in the game or any sort of personal interest when we have this military culture that's just those people in the South who do this stuff and they volunteer. And, you know, so that's I think that's a big problem. Yeah. All right. uh, Moving on. Steve's question for us is this. Wow. Okay. I just read the question. It kind of took me aback. Uh, If you were the Speaker of the House or even President, what would be your plan to heal the division in this country? No reaching across the aisle, which is a talking point, a generality, (laughs) and not specific enough a response. Also, if you were Speaker or in Congress, what would you propose to limit the executive branch in light of the last several administrations, possibly even dating back to Truman, holding too much power in our governmental structure? Now, Jay, you know why I said, wow, um, yeah. I'm going to take a that minute. A big and, question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to let you take first crack at this. Oh, one. I get first crack. Oh, at this yeah. And I can't I can't just reach. Across no, the I, I'm going to get a um, minute to talk. I think while you <laughs> answer. <laughs>
1: I I, w- I would say um, there there are a lot of things in our our country a lot of, a lot of topics upon which we can have agreement uh, where we could force afford some, some compromise and rightly or wrongly uh, Republicans are not as adverse to spending money as they used to be uh, so if I were the Speaker of the House Speaker of a Democratic House I think there were a lot that, a lot of things you could do on infrastructure for example where you could get some bipartisan buy-in. There are a lot of pieces on health care, uh, going back to um, uh, Obamacare, where I think you could have had a bipartisan bill that would have been, you know, if you just want to say, okay, let's protect pre existing conditions, uh, keep kids on their uh, uh, parents' insurance till 26, or or, or whatever, you know, that number you want to come up with. And other little tweaks that that could have been made and maybe a modest Medicare expansion, Medicaid expansion. Uh, without creating this whole new system of of uh, uh, exchanges and and so forth and subsidies and all that, uh, I, I think there there could have been something there, um, uh, right? So I, I think to me that's what I would would do is concentrate on that that low hanging fruit. On here are some issues where uh, we we can agree or where our disagreements are are less severe. Uh, as opposed to uh, things that are are big and 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 structural, I think that's the other thing that that often scares the other side. It scares scares me as a conservative when um, uh, Democrats talk about uh, you know a big big uh, new program or a you know we want a, a law overturning Citizens United or we want to uh, abolish the Electoral College or we want to those those big sort of things put put people back on. there are like, wait a minute, that that sounds an awful lot like you're trying to you know take over the world. So I, I think if there were more humility uh, and and take a look at okay what uh, what problems can we approach even if we can't solve them hundred uh, percent you know we can maybe get seventy percent of the way there uh, I that would that would be my thought now and the the, the second part of the question what would I do um, if I were the speaker of the house I think there's there's a lot to be said about clawing back Congress's power uh, one way to do it would be to pass legislation that doesn't defer uh so many decisions to rulemaking uh another a concrete example would be uh let's let's change the, the war powers act or or the deployment or tr- if if you know congress wants to be consulted then let's let's actually get in there um but that hasn't been the the situation just because congress is able to sort of have it both ways if if you will um and uh, uh so that that would be my my brief plan yeah.
0: okay Well, you know, if I were, I don't think that the speaker can do a whole heck of a lot. And I understand what you're saying. And these things, I think, could maybe make some minor policy differences along the edges. But to me, just how the system is set up almost ensures the fact that let's say you're a speaker like, well, like Nancy Pelosi, who, you know, that's like an evil word on the Republican side. But Nancy Pelosi, I think, in her view, was was trying to prevent the uh, impeachment of Donald Trump because she felt it would be a very divisive. And I, I mean, she's in fact said that. And, and right. she found that, you know, the, spe- right. the speaker is hostage to his or her own caucus. Yep. Right. And so the speaker, I don't think, can do very much. You kind you of you have to go where your members and where your funders make you go. Now, the president, though, on the other hand, can do a lot. So if I were in the position of the president, well first off, I would just have to accept Resign. F- no. <laughs> I would have to accept the fact that I would be a one-term president. So but after being elected, I, I think certainly I would do th- I could do things like nominate judges and people for positions who maybe weren't at all, you know, were were centrist, basically, uh and actually find some people from the other party to nominate for some key positions. That wasn't at all incredibly uncommon. Now, sometimes it was just for like the transportation department and things like that, but certainly those are some small things. I think- No offense to anyone who works for the Department of Transportation. We we
1: value your service.
0: But I think the (laughs) biggest thing to me is that, well, my cynical side says, you know what, there's nothing we can do. And it's just like being an addict or something. We're just going to have to wait till we bottom out. And, uh, you know, but if I'm being less cynical, I think I would say the, the one thing maybe that I would focus on more than anything else as president, in fact, make it my sole issue, is I would hammer night and day on campaign finance reform. I would use all the power of my office to try to make that structural change. Because I agree with uh, with Lawrence Lessig, the, the Harvard Law professor who I've had on the show a couple of times, who feels that all everything else stems from the incredible reliance of everyone in our electoral politics system at the national level on the sources of money from these very small number of people. And unless we change that system, nothing else is going to change. And so that's what I would do is is our system is designed to, to to be dysfunctional because of the reliance on big money. And until we change that, nothing else is going to change. And so that's what I would do as president. I would make that my my one overriding issue and it would just totally destroy my presidency. But hopefully I can make that happen before I was booted out by my party. All right. Well, that's not a bad answer at all. No, well, thank you. You know, uh, before we get to our next question, we want to thank our sponsors to today. First is Empower. And if you are interested in saving a lot more this year, a lot more. Empower, the Empower app can help make that happen. With Empower, saving and managing your money is super simple. They have this set it and forget it auto save function. It lets you put in your weekly savings target. Then every day, Empower studies your income and spending and automatically moves the right amount of money into your savings account where you're going to be less likely to spend it. And in addition, Empower can actually negotiate your phone and cable bills for you. That's really cool. They've also got real Human being type people coaches who you can text for individualized recommendations. So if you want to say big this year, download Empower. That's E M P O W E R in the App Store or Play Store. I did, and over six hundred fifty thousand other people have too. And even better, Politics Guys listeners get five dollars when you use offer code POLITICSGUYS and reach your savings goal. Visit Empower.me/politicsguys for more details. We're also sponsored by Sanebox. Until recently, uh, my inbox, Gmail, was just uh, oh, uh, frightfully bad. Uh, but Sanebox changed that entirely because as your email comes in, Sanebox keeps only the important messages in your inbox. Everything else they send to your Sane Later folder, which means you immediately know what messages to pay attention to and what stuff can wait until you have the time. They also have a bunch of other great features like Sane Black Hole, that's where you can put messages from annoying senders you never want to hear from again, and Sane Reminders, which is this great feature that lets you know if someone hasn't replied to your email by a certain date. And best of all, you can use SaneBox with any email, client, or phone anywhere you check your email. So see how SaneBox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com slash PoliticsGuys today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S dot PoliticsGuys. All right, on to our next question, Jay. It is, let's see, actually one of a number of questions from our Bipartisan Politics subreddit. And, you know, I've, I've promoted this before. On the show, but I gotta say, I have been super impressed by the quality of, of questions and comments we've gotten on the, on the Reddit group. I, I was skeptical about setting it up, but I've, I've really enjoyed going to it pretty much every day and, and seeing the stuff people post there. So those of you, you, you hearty small band of subredditors, thank you so much because it has been a real pleasure. And they are the source of, I think, the rest of our questions we have for today. So here All we right. go. Um, And the names will sound really weird because they're Reddit names, but right. you know who you are. Uh, let's see. We have Arc Teacher who asks, if you were going to give public education in America a letter grade for its current state, what would it be and why? And he follows up by referencing a number of things, including stagnant test scores as well as some lawsuits that have actually been filed in certain districts, arguing that there is a right to a certain basic quality of education that in some cases isn't being met. Uh so Jay, what what grade would you give public education in this country? Well this kind I, of I,
1: I, Go ahead. Yeah, I, I weighed into this first of all saying that uh for me to have any expertise in public education across the country, everywhere, I, I, I don't. Um, I, I did work uh, a lot with um, public education issues uh, in Ohio like 20 years ago. When we had those kind of issues, we had a, a lawsuit challenging our school funding system. Um, my sense is I don't think you can give one grade, maybe you give two grades. I think there are a lot of places, a lot of schools that are doing incredible jobs. They're doing much better than what they were doing, uh, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, and then there were other districts which uh, have been failing and continue to be failing. Um, and, and the reasons for, uh, it's sort of a, a Tolstoy thing of, um, all happy families are alike. Uh, and, and unhappiness, uh, is, uh, the rest family that is goes.
0: different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So, I, you know, I think there are, there are plenty of, of places where you have the great combination of, of a, a solid uh, tax base uh, to fund schools. You have uh, uh, parents who are uh, educated and involved in their kids' lives. Uh, you have a lot of resources. Uh, you have a, a safe community. You know, everybody's uh, getting breakfast, all those kind of things. Uh, you have other districts where that's not the case. Yeah. And it could be directly related to the school issues. It could be direct. It could be related to addiction issues. It could be related to um, uh, just just parental involvement. It could be related to uh, immigration or legal status. There, there are so many of of those other things. And I think that that's part of the you know problem is is we're asking um, we ask our schools to do so much, Um, and, and there are a lot of social problems that manifest themselves in schools um, but it's not necessarily within the the school's power to be able to, to solve those. So that's, that's my, that's my sense. And and again, that's without looking at any specific data that's just looking at what I know from Ohio and and local stuff.
0: I don't, you know, necessarily disagree with much at all uh, of that, and uh, I look at this and giving uh, a grade kind of like how when I have a class and I have individual students who do better or worse, then I look at the class average basically. And so, as you point out, there are some school districts that are incredible uh, and some that are awful. And if I had to guesstimate a class average, I would say a D uh, somewhere, and and in part. The problem I generally have is the wide variance, and you you referenced this a little bit. Some schools have good tax bases, that sort of thing, and that to me is is at the heart of it. We have this totally backward system where the places with the most need have the less have the least money because of how we fund most of our public schools. And to me, this is a waste on so many levels. Even if you're just looking at it from a straight economist standpoint. It is an enormous waste of human capital and human potential. Um, so I think the funding model for our public schools in most places is just, just crazy. Basically, and uh, of course, you know, states have the ability to, to to set whatever funding model they want. In most cases, it's based on, well, it, it's a model where the schools that Some have
1: property tax,
0: yeah, yeah, and so schools in areas where they have the kind of better social structure and the educated parents who have the time and all that, and fewer the fewer of the social issues in the areas, they're the ones who have the best funding. That's that's, that's exactly backwards, basically. I've already talked about how I feel about, you know, supporting vouchers and, and, and private schools with public money. I think that's awful as well for the same reason that we're just not putting enough into our public schools. And so where I would start, well, I, I, I looked and the Department of Education, U.S. Department of Education in 2019, it gave grant, grants, a total of grants of, to K-12 through 12 schools of $15.8 billion. So I think a good place to start would be to quadruple that and go from there. And focus mostly on those districts where – the type of district where students have brought lawsuits saying that they're not even getting a – they're not even learning how to read essentially uh, to any kind of reasonable level. No, I do not. I think the argument that there is a constitutional right to a basic education is – a stretch. Now, state constitutions might state be different. Constitutions
1: yeah. can be different. Yeah. But
0: uh, but still, that was that would that would be at least one step. And that's not you know I mean uh, uh, what that would be uh, sixty billion dollars. That's a drop in the bucket. And so that would just be a tiny bit of a start. But I think states need to look much harder at their at their funding model and stop giving the most money to the places that need it the least and the least money to the places that need it the most.
1: I would say that's your answer for everything is quadruple the spending, but we can leave it
0: there. Okay. Okay. Uh, Um, uh, Yeah. Okay. Next, we have Ghost Dog, who had some questions for us on the party system. And so to kind of condense and summarize here, uh, Ghost Dog, he or she, is wondering if we believe the parties are as polarized as the media tends to claim what we think in general about the party system, uh, especially given that the framers themselves didn't seem to be too crazy about what they termed factions. And finally, what our opinion is of third way politics. So Jay, um, me first. Yeah. Whatever you want to start on that. Yeah. Uh, You know, to me, it's, um,
1: I don't know. Have they always been that it's, it's hard to hard for me to, to gauge because I'll tell you, I'm not, actively on the ground as much as I used to be uh in that um my sense is on the local levels and at state level there is still a lot of of uh bipartisan respect and people who work across the aisle with one another um to get things done um there's there's always the partisanship in terms of um look when it comes to electing a speaker of the house you're going to you're going to pick your guy over the other guy um, but um uh I, I don't I don't see the um, as as harsh uh, political partisanship um that I do on the national level, and some of that might be related to as you pointed out kind of the money you need to raise and what you need to do to get um to get attention so um, that's that's my my sense okay. uh Donald Trump has also changed the equation a little bit um And then thrown sort of gasoline on the fire where, again, ironically, in a lot of ways, he's he's not terribly what a traditional Republican uh, has been. Um, But uh, I think that's. Yeah, I guess that's my answer.
0: Well, you know, I'll put my uh, explicitly put on my political scientist hat here. There's a distinction we make uh, between the party and the electorate. And uh, uh, party officials and party elites. Right. Yeah. And so when we look at data on polarization uh, among these three groups, so we have, again, we have the three groups, we have uh, people who are elected in the, who are party members, then we have the party elites, and then we have the, so just the general party identifiers. And what, what the data shows us is that there is a ton more polarization of el- people who are elected representing the parties right? No yeah. question. Um, there's also a ton more polarization for party elites. But where polarization has just not really changed much at all is the mass of people. And most people aren't ideological. It's easy for people like us who are so involved in politics and people who will, will listen to the politics guys to to appreciate, but most folks just aren't very political at all. And so I really think that Are we, you know, the answer to the questions, are we more polarized than ever is yes and no. It depends on what you look at. If you look at most regular people, not really so much the data shows, you know, uh, but if you look at the people who are making the decisions and who are most involved in politics, yeah, we're a lot more polarized. I think that's a big problem. But I also think that there's at least one way to, one way to at least partially solve it. I'm thinking about this because... quadruple the spending. No, <laughs> no there's, there's actually, I, I'm thinking about this because I just recently finished a, a chapter in the book that Will and I are working on uh, about uh, reforms to the uh, American political system. And to me, one of the big problems is that most of these people or most of these people who are not ideological are people who don't vote. Uh, There's a pretty strong connection there, which is why I'm much more in favor of an Australian system where, you know, Australia routinely gets uh, uh, voting percentages of 90 percent plus. In fact, in I think it was 2016, I read their election commission's report and they said, we got some problems. We've had our lowest voter turnout since like 1948. And I was like, oh my God, what was it? It was 90.1%. And they were like, oh, this is, oh, this is a problem. Yeah. it's like, oh, holy crap. But uh, Australia does it a lot differently. They have uh, mandatory voting. They have Saturday elections. And I think a system like that brings out a lot. Uh, for I think it's great for a lot of reasons. Which hey, you know, buy the book. I'll say uh, when it comes out uh, next year. But I think it's great for a lot of reasons. In part because I think that's one way to lower polarization is to get people who are less polarized involved right now.
1: Yeah, and my my response would be: and This is something we've talked about a bunch of times. Uh, part of that, when you're talking about the partisanship, or or and maybe partisanship isn't the right word. Maybe it's it's uh, um. I don't know, we need to, we need to come up with a different word, intensity, perhaps. Um, uh, it goes to the fact that, uh, we have these, these districts that are uh, gerrymandered heavily. Um, and, and there is that, that sense of you get these, you know, if you're in a, you know, locked in, um a uh, place whether it's the right or the left there's always a, a race to the far corner right yeah. to beat out the other guy in the primary uh part of that i think is due to gerrymandering uh another part of it is due to just the sort of self-sorting self-selection that that uh you know the country's gone through the past couple decades about where people live where people move that sort of thing so
0: i would say you know was it, how? How does it go? The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. I think is so right. Yeah. So you know, we get a little poetic out of there, but uh, but yeah. So um, let's see. here. And uh, you know, also the thing about third way politics that uh, that Ghost Dog asked 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 about. Yeah, I think third way politics is, is great, but the problem again is that if the people, if mainly the people who are involved and are. Uh, you know, working within the system are, are the people who are the most passionately intense and the most polarized, well, then that's going to automatically limit those sort of third way options. And so unless we can find a way to involve the the less ideologically extreme people, I think we're just going to run into some natural limits.
1: Right. And they tend to be less involved just because they're just not that into it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. We have Alex who is interested in our views of Bernie Sanders on the debate stage in a general election. Uh, Alex writes, if Bernie were to come through the primaries by fending off Biden and Warren, I think he would actually be a very good challenger to Trump on the debate stage. Given that Trump is likely to repeat his grandstanding, misleading, and extremely aggressive debate tactics, I think that Bernie will appear to be much more knowledgeable, much more sincere, and will provide real answers when Trump does not. I think Bernie's sincerity and political consistency makes it much more difficult for Trump to go after him than Warren and Biden. Whilst I also can foresee Trump exposing the latter two's lack of courage in their convictions very assuredly. What are your thoughts on this?
1: As um, my first thought, because I, I wanted to mention this maybe last time we were on, but I think maybe I wasn't on that week after the last debate, perhaps the funniest moment, uh, political moment uh, in recent history was the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, uh, confrontation and Tom Steyer stopping in to say hello. <laughs> yeah. Um, at which point this was kind of caught on, on the mics and, uh, Sanders and, and, uh, Sanders accuses Warren about lying, lying about his record. And, um, Steyer just sort of blunders into it and says, uh, hi, Bernie just wanted to stop and say, uh, stop in and say hi to which Bernie responds, Okay, fine. Thanks. <laughs> this is completely <laughs> dismissal sort of. Um, but, uh, anyway, I, I don't I don't know. I my my sense is a, a Sanders Trump debate might just be two two crazy old people yelling at each other. Um I I I certainly uh Sanders does uh win points for sincerity. Um but I think Trump would he, he gives Trump uh some arguments on um look the stuff that, that uh is being proposed just isn't uh you know, feasible within the realm of reality uh, as opposed to Biden who would have a a more moderate view and Biden could campaign on the um, uh, look, I'm not here to fundamentally uh, rework your economy, um, but I'm just not as big a jerk as this guy. Um, and I think that's, I think that kind of plays into what the question I answered earlier is, is uh, uh, a lot of people would prefer the, distasteful uh, Donald Trump, uh, who, worst case scenario, they know will be gone in four years, as opposed to a complete economic reordering.
0: You know, I the way I look at this is I, uh, uh, I agree, I think, largely with Alex that Bernie Sanders might be a better debate matchup with Donald Trump for all the reasons that he mentions. But I also know that almost all the research that we have on debates show that They don't really move the needle much. They don't change people's opinions very much, uh, maybe a tiny bit at the margins. And so I have to weigh what that tiny bit of difference might be uh, against what I think, uh, how much I think a Bernie Sanders candidacy might, on one hand, energize the progressive left, but on the other hand, energize Not just the right, but perhaps a lot of moderate voters. And so when I look at what I think the coalition that a successful Democratic challenger to Donald Trump is going to have to be because we have an electoral college, I I see certainly I see Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren racking up some pretty big margins in California and uh, New York and some other places. But that's not where we need to win We need to win in, uh, you know, in Pennsylvania and we need to win in Michigan and Minnesota and places like that. And so that's where I think that's much more problematic. And so I agree. I think a uh, Bernie. I think you know, especially with Biden, because God knows what's going to happen with Joe Biden in a national debate. Uh, that that's that's a scary thought, you know. Uh, I've been actually been asked, and, a, and I guess I didn't
1: respond to the question appropriately because I was thinking just more in terms of overall election electability as sure. opposed to debate specifically. Yeah, but.
0: yeah, and like I said, that that's how I because debates are a means to an end, of course, uh, to, to get to getting elected, and so. You know, Alta, at this point, I've been talking a lot about this again, back and forth with some folks on the uh, bipartisan politics subreddit group that uh, that, you know, I I really think in terms of electability, if she could find a way to somehow break through uh, the into the into the front rank, like like an Amy Klobuchar would be would be great, Uh, you know, but I don't I don't see that really happening. And so Joe Biden might be the, the best last best hope sort of thing, which is, that's a little scary thought for me, given, given my feeling that Joe Biden is slipping more than a little bit, but, uh, but there it is. So, all right. Um, I think we have time for one more. It's a short question and Jay, I think we're both going to agree on okay. this. So we could probably end on this note of agreement. Here we go. Uh, Ufamba asks, what's your opinion about the judicial system in America? Is it too weak or do you feel this is simply a perception issue? And I'll start off with this one. It's like I okay. think just the opposite, and this is why I think we'll agree. I think, uh, if anything, I see judicial activism being uh, a problem in the, in this country. The courts taking on, like what we talked about in the Saturday Show, you know, the the Montana State Supreme Court deciding to act uh, on right. behalf of the state legislature. So I I feel that uh, just as a general rule that courts should defer to the democratically elected institutions because they're not democratically elected. And justices and judges on both sides tend to be these days, or maybe for the past, oh, hell, I don't know, Jay, what century, <laughs> been, yeah. been far too willing to substitute their judgment for that of the democratically elected branches. So I would actually argue just the opposite, that the judicial system is uh, taking too much on itself and that a lot more things should work themselves out through the democratic process.
1: Uh, yeah, I can't disagree with that. Um, I guess I'm sure the question If is, you know, what do we think of the judicial system? That's kind of like one of those uh, so what do you think of the Roman Empire, right? I mean it's kind of well <laughs> <laughs> there's some good that's stuff. Some there's good some good points. Yeah, stuff, yeah. You know, I mean, there's, you know uh, but there's a lot going on. Um yeah, generally I I think that's I think Mike's right. I mean, if we're talking about it, it's its proper role, it is it is to uh defer to the legislature uh where where appropriate and uh to be a a you know, body that that determines the law rather than determines policy.
0: And just say where appropriate is important because I would certainly yeah. say that there are certain instances where sure. something is being done that's illegal or you unconstitutional.
1: The rest of your right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, also,
0: and I wanted to say the not making policy thing. I wanted to jump on that too because. As, as Jay, you, could, you can explain this better than I can, but there are instances where the court can reach a certain decision in a narrow way and also yeah. in a broad way. And just because the court rules on an issue of legal or constitutional importance does not mean they have to take that next step and mandate policy solutions.
1: Yeah, right. No, absolutely right. All right. Yeah, so I think we I think we're in agreement there. Yeah.
0: Well it's always nice to end on a note of agreement. So we will just we'll stop now while we're ahead. But everyone, we really do appreciate you listening to this week's show. And we do hope you check out our sponsors, Empower and Same Box, and you'll find links to both of them in the show notes. And again, we still do appreciate your your support and that's really the majority of what Helps keep us financially afloat. And, of course, as a monthly sustaining supporter on Patreon, you get special bonus content, completely ad-free episodes and more. Check it all out, patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you want to get in touch with us, that's mail at politicsguys.com. There's our bipartisan politics subreddit, URLs in the show notes, our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page, and we're on Twitter at politicsguys. And hey, if you aren't already a subscriber, we would appreciate it if you do subscribe and leave ratings and reviews and most especially share your favorite episodes. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, and Daniel Toe. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. Our opening theme is Rolling at Five by Kevin MacLeod. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.